The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today in the 20th chapter of Acts. Although there are 28 chapters, there's only going to be a few more weeks in this series because we head into passages of rather long narrative of travel and speeches of defense by Paul before various authorities. And he does speak somewhat differently in different situations, but I'm not going to trace all of those. And that's going to mean that we close in on the end of Acts rather quickly here in the next few weeks. But today, a passage that's very important, even though I spoke from this passage just over a year ago in making a challenge from it to our elders and deacons on, I believe, the Sunday that we installed officers in 2012, I'm going to look at Acts 20, 17 and following in a different light, a broader application understanding. It's a very important speech or sermon by Paul that we would consider here. And it follows a time when Paul had been in between our last look at him in Corinth. In chapter 19, he goes to Ephesus, and he spent a long time of ministry there, then was elsewhere, and now is meeting up again with these Ephesian leaders whom he had served as pastor in the port of Miletus. Listen to God's Word, Acts 20. Now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life to be of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking 
twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is God's own word. A century or more ago, it was fairly common for people to attempt before their death to write out a last will and testament. I think I understand why there are two words, not one there. The will is the legal part that deals with your property and how it shall be divided among your heirs. But a testament is something more, an expression of love, an exhortation perhaps, pious advice given to those who you leave behind perhaps instructing them how to live or how to follow your example. We don't have the testament part with wills today too much. We have a will that's a pretty clinical, cold, legal document. But the testament comes in many times when a pastor has a chance to say farewell to people he has ministered to. And that's what we have here in Acts 20. A pastor who is drawing, in Paul's case, on human bonds built up over almost three years. The longest time he spent in any one place was with the Ephesian congregation. And then he's been away from them for a while, and now he's got a last goodbye chance, a quick goodbye. Paul's drawing upon a relationship that I understand to some level. I've had to say goodbye to congregations before, five of them in my past days of ministry ranging from two years to eight years in the same place, there would come a Sunday when I would have to say, this is it, folks. I won't see your faces again, at least as your pastor. And while we look at how this chapter ended, I didn't read the very end about the weeping as they went to the boat together and and were very sorrowful, it says, because they knew they wouldn't see Paul again at the end of the chapter. I've never had anybody take me to a ship and weep over me, but Those are hard occasions because it's a special bond when you've shared the highs and lows of people's life, when you've given them the gospel that may have even influenced them in eternal ways. The goodbye is a special one. Our text is also unique because of all the sermons in this book, and remember I told you early on, Acts is a book full of sermons, full of speeches. Peter, Stephen, many by Paul, a varying kind. More than any other biblical book, it has sermons in it. This is a unique sermon in the whole book, and it will surprise you to hear why, because it's the only one in which the entire audience were known to be Christians. Every other one, Paul was speaking, Peter was speaking, Stephen was speaking to a broad general audience, maybe even a hostile audience that did not share faith, or maybe some did and some didn't. And so it was evangelistic or it was defensive of the gospel or something, but this is a tender speech to people who share Christian faith and and that entirely, and it's the only one of its kind in the book. We believe what was happening here is Paul was, we're told that Paul was heading for Jerusalem. He was in some haste to get there for particular reasons. There was good reason to think there was danger ahead, that he could be arrested. He was indeed arrested when he got there, and it did lead to a whole series of things, imprisonment and trials and so on, 
that took him to the end of his life. And, and many of his friends feared those exact things. And this was a quick goodbye. He had to summon the Ephesian elders. They were 30 miles, living 30 miles from the port of Miletus. Somehow he got word to them quickly, some kind of messenger, and they came while he had this short stopover and had this time for a goodbye. Luke was present. We think Luke would have taken down these words or at least a digest of what Paul spoke on that occasion. Now, as I said, I've spoken from this before and, and used this. It often is, is seen and interpreted as instruction to elders because it is, these are all basically the overseers, the elders of the church. And it could be seen perhaps exclusively as a word for elders, but I'm asking that we broaden its interpretation this morning and see this last testament of Paul as speaking about the well-lived Christian life, the life that we hope would be spoken about us or could be spoken about us if we came to the end and said, this is the last thing I'm going to have to say. Here's what I hope my life has shown you. I hope we're going to see this maybe as a broader general template for any Christian life this morning as I single out five short things to understand from key phrases of this passage that I've read. First of all is verse 18, where Paul writes to say, you know how I lived when I was among you. Now, this is a preacher, a man of words, a teacher, a man of thoughts and concepts, a man of the Scriptures who has taught and preached to these people, and you would think he'd be saying, you know my sermons, you know my teaching, remember them. But notice that's not what he says. He says, you know how I lived when I was among you. It was actions and character that were on Paul's mind as he says here, I served the Lord with humility and tears as I went through trials for the gospel among you. Now, reading it wrongly, this could sound like egotism. Paul's saying, wasn't I great? Everybody look at me. But he's not saying that. We know from many places where he speaks this way that he's saying, look, if you saw Christ in me, then take note of that. In fact, he says that exact thing in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look for Christ in how I lived and remember that. Paul is aiming to be able to say that a Christian life, his and others, should be lived as an open book. Yes, It's going to be a life with mistakes and sins in it. And those have to be confessed, certainly first to the Lord, maybe to some other individual, and in some instances even publicly if if they affected more people. And a Christian has to be willing to say, my life is a very fallible one. I've fallen down. He knows when those who are saying, when the unbelievers are saying, oh, I know the wrong, what's wrong with those Christians. They say one thing and they do something different. A Christian's ready to say, of course I do something different. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I publicly and privately acknowledge when I've fallen down. But there are other times, of course, when the life of a Christian is going to be an exhibition of the Holy Spirit, working through and speaking through and shining through our clay. And on those times, we give credit to God. We don't say, look what I did. Every Christian has to understand this lesson that I think Paul's talking about here. I'll put it in a few words. The sermon that is acted out by your life is the one that speaks loudest of all. 
Now, that's not an argument against doctrine. Doctrine and theology are, of course, important. We need to study those things and teach those things. But in the end, what does doctrine and what does theology and teaching produce in terms of our living, in terms of our relationships, the way we lead, the way we are a husband or a wife or a parent? You know, as I said, unbelievers are quick to point out the hypocrisy. They love it to look at a Christian and say, oh, look at the disparity. He says this, but he does this. And you know that what you do, what they see, will knock down what you say every single time. By the grace of God, we seek lives that are authentic lives. That means humility. That means asking forgiveness as well as giving it. That means following Christ, but knowing when we do get it right and when the righteousness of God is seen in our lives, the credit's not ours, it's God's. A Christ-like life is both humble and it has integrity in all the things that it does. I used a calculator for this, although the math isn't real difficult. I tried to think about this difference of who a preacher is and what he says being contrasted by Paul here, his life versus his sermons. I, I sat down with a calculator and thought in almost 19 years, how many sermons have I preached? How many different sermons have I preached in this church? And of course, each one of them twice, but just individually, the sermon itself, how many? And I came up with a number, and it had to be an estimate, but close to a 1,000. Kind of stunned me even. And then I multiplied by at least 30 minutes per sermon, and I come out with 500-plus hours of preaching. Now, I'm glad that none of you has had to sit and listen for 500 consecutive hours. You wouldn't have done it anyway, even if we asked you. I don't know what inducement we would ever give anybody to do a thing like that. But the point is, having heard hundreds of hours of preaching, how many can you restate? What teachings can you say, oh, yes, I remember from, you know, 1997, this was, no, you can't remember that. And so somebody might say, well, why preach anyway then if nobody's going to remember it? Well, the point is that all of that content, all of that doctrine is being fed into your life just the way you're, you're feeding and, and dealing with your lawn this time of year. If you care about a lawn, you're giving it fertilizer, you're giving it weed killer, and And just like that, the Word of God has been going into your life, feeding your life to provide growth for you. And your life is different because you've received that Word, whether you can repeat it all or not. And the same thing with the life of the one who has spoken to you. You Paul went away, and what did they remember about Paul? Oh, yes, I know he preached on Isaiah, you know, 54 too. Maybe they remembered that, but probably they didn't. What they remembered was his personality, his character, his integrity, his humility, his suffering. Does the Word of God produce godly character in the life? That's what we're always testing when we look at other Christians, aren't we? Subconsciously, aren't we measuring other people to say, has God's Word sort of reproduced a picture of Christ in that life? Well, if we're going to measure other people by that, we need to measure ourselves that way. Let me put it this way. In the final analysis, Paul didn't live so other people would go around declaring what a great man Paul is. He lived 
so that people ended up saying, what a great God Paul serves. I call you to that. Secondly, we look at verses 20 to 23 here. And Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable. He's talking about God's Word, the entirety of God's Word, the whole counsel of God, it's called later in this passage. From beginning to end, Genesis, of course, the New Testament books weren't yet completed at this time, but but for us it means from Genesis to Revelation. I didn't fail to make known to you anything from the Word of God that would profit you, the comforting things, the encouraging things, as well as the prickly things that convicted you or, or called you to account. And that's the kind of truth of God we have to seek, not just that. You know, some people, I think, Christians live by a little pocket full of promises from the Bible. They have their favorite passages, Psalm 23 and, you know, eight or ten more verses. And, oh, I get such encouragement, Romans 8, 28 and John 3.16, and I kind of live on this little packet of good things that, that soothe my life. Well, Paul is saying we have to be saturated with the whole counsel of God, with anything that would be profitable, even if what it does is tear down some idol in our life or provoke us in some way to, to see ourselves in a way we never have before. Paul was a man who kept his life, as we like to say today in corporate terms, on message. You ever hear people talk about that? You know, a company has to stay on message, their product or their service. Are they staying on message or have they sort of wandered off and don't know what they're saying anymore? Paul stayed on message. He shows us that in verse 21. His message was repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that even as a believer, he had to keep on repenting because he was wandering from God. He had to keep coming back and re-expressing his trust and his faith in Jesus Christ every day to have a life saturated in the entirety of God's Word. Well, there's a third thing here, and it is the sense Paul gives of running a race or moving towards a goal in this third point, verses 24 to 27. The phrase that jumps at me is this, if only I might finish my course. This is a driven man, a man who feels like there's a goal he's aspiring towards, that he's compelled by the calling of God on a spirit-led mission to complete something. An item in our local news Uh, Lancaster TV News jumped at me a couple days ago. It was an interview with a 51-year-old man from Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, who has run for the last 26 years without missing in the Boston Marathon. And he was displaying his medals. You get a a medal with a nice ribbon when you complete the Boston Marathon. He had them on his arm, all along his arm, 26 of them. But the interesting thing about this man at age 51 is this. Having done that for 26 years, he has a problem coming up this year. The Boston Marathon is tomorrow. And this man has had an Achilles tendon problem, and he hasn't been able to run for weeks. Now, I don't know how many of you are runners, but I don't know how many of you would approach and run a marathon without training. You know, just cold, your body being basically inert as far as exercise goes for weeks That just is not the way it's done. I know that. As a non-athlete, I know that. 
You know, a marathon for me is halfway around the block, practically. But, but here's what this man said, and it grabbed me. He said, look, I haven't been able to train. I don't know how I'm going to do, but I'm registered. I'm going. I will be in the marathon. And, and he caught me with this phrase. He said, I will finish. Although it may not be pretty, I will finish. And I thought, that could be Paul speaking. That's the way Paul regarded his life. It might not be pretty by the finish line, but Paul said, I will finish the race that God has mapped out. There's a compelling sense that I have a mission of faithfulness and testimony. And and that testimony is all about letting my life display a witness to the gospel of Christ to others so that actually I won't have to cross the finish line alone. But there'll be a host of souls crossing it with me into the arms of Christ. I believe Paul had a soul that was provoked by the idea that he would encounter any man or woman any day of his life who might leave an encounter with Paul and not know something about Christ. That provoked him. Now, I'm sure that there were people that Paul didn't, you know, deliberately buttonhole and say, hey, brother, do you know Jesus? But he certainly was beaming with the gospel all the time and trying his utmost effort that if people were going to miss the gospel and remain ignorant of it, it would not be to his account. You notice what he says here to these people. He'd been with them three years. He says, look, I am innocent of your blood. He's saying eternally, if you were to come before the throne of Christ at the last day and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm accountable to you, but that guy, Paul, you sent to be our pastor and an ambassador of the gospel just didn't make it plain to me. I'm sorry. I, I have an excuse for not knowing Christ as my Lord. Paul said, you don't have that excuse because I bled gospel all the time I was with you. Paul knew what a a man named Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher, would say more than a thousand years after him. When Baxter said he approached his pulpit every Sunday and he went there feeling like a burdened man, he said, I preached as a dying man unto dying men. And there was a burden to be discharged here a goal to be achieved because the eternal destinies of people were on the line. Now, you're not preachers necessarily. Most of you are not. But I ask you how much of that burden leaks over into your life. Are there people you pray for regularly, believing that somehow you desire to see God save that person? You can't save them. And yet God might use your word, your example, your life of integrity, your prayers. He works mysteriously in these things. Are you groaning over any people close to you who don't know Christ? Are you burdened and compelled the way Paul was to communicate that gospel? Fourthly, in these points I make from Paul's last will and testament, To have a well-lived life is to be alert and to take a warning. That's given in verses 28 to 31. And he startles these people, I imagine, a bit. You know, he has said these things about witness and so on when he says this to them. Fierce 
wolves are not going to spare Christ's flock. From among yourselves will come men teaching twisted things. Be alert, Christians, because you are going to have to live even within the church as people in a war zone. Many of us are in dismay today about our society and about our government. We look at things changing, fundamental principles of morality, and we say, oh my goodness, how can they collapse on this? Well, what do we really expect from a secular culture? We live in a war zone. Do we expect our secular culture to respect Christian morality at all points? They're not going to. And even within the Christian church, we're going to have those that do exactly what Paul said here, teach twisted things. You know, that's what heresy really is. It's not something 180 degrees different than Christian truth. It's Christian truth that gets bent, twisted, and then shoots off in a wrong direction. And within the church, there's going to be these things, Paul's saying. I mentioned earlier that I pastored five churches prior to this one. Two of them have suffered absolutely ruinous, serious doctrinal problems, one more than any other, since in the time after I left, in the years after I left. And another one even had some fairly serious problems. This is not an empty warning. God's people live in a war zone. And amazingly enough, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of the church, tends to plant even within the church. Those who aren't necessarily rank heretics, they don't stand up and and preach some different Christ, but they take the same Christ and they twist him. Or they take a leadership position and they don't serve it in humility and in servitude to the people and their best good, but rather to their own ego and, and some kind of power gain. And they twist it. We have a member of our church who has an unbelievable testimony to tell of early life. She's older than I am. She grew up during World War II. She was a young girl living in Germany. And there, I believe, in the care of her aunt in a city in Germany. And here she was, just a young girl trying to learn school lessons and have friends and maybe play and find some enjoyment and live a young girl's life. But the city she was in was being bombed by the Allies every night, practically every night. She and her aunt had to hear the sirens and hear the bombs coming and run and get in a tunnel. Imagine living your your childhood in a war zone. And, of course, children do this all over the world today. That's how Christians have to live. In the awareness that we're in a war zone with our secular culture, with people who hate the gospel, but amazingly enough, even with some who would profess to love the gospel but can twist it, can abuse it, who can act almost as saboteurs in the midst of God's kingdom and among his people. We have to put things to the test. Is someone's teaching and someone's witness and someone's life conforming to this book? And then we put ourselves to the test as well. And know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are going to live in a war zone. Well, listen to what what I've said then. Four points here. Paul showed us that our daily lives are the most powerful sermon we can preach. Secondly, that we must have lives saturated with all of the Word of God. Thirdly, 
that we're running a race with a compelling sense of mission, seeking to complete it. Fourthly, that we're doing this on dangerous ground with bombs falling all around us. Isn't it great that Paul said the fifth thing? And it's in verse 32 as I conclude with this. He said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul didn't walk away from these friends and say, you know, what I've given you is a really hard challenge and the enemy's after you and I just go and do the best you can and I hope you escape. No. He finished with this strong word of grace that the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is with his people. God is for us. We literally have an almighty army in this three-in-one God who goes ahead of us and goes beside us and comes behind us as our rear guard, this army of three has never lost a battle and has never failed to take a position or realize a goal that God has declared as his objective. And so as these people parted, Paul, the pastor, from these Ephesian friends, and they wept at the boat, Paul had left them in the strongest hands he could because he didn't just leave them with his last will and testament. He left them really, friends, with the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. The very kind of thing that Jesus said in John chapter 10 like this, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said, or my Father's hand. I commend you to God and the infallible word of his grace. This will keep you regardless of what the world brings, regardless of what twisted people in the church bring against you. This will keep you. This will preserve you. If every church building was somehow pulverized into dust tomorrow, God would keep his church The souls of his people would go forward and accomplish in eternity what he designs will happen because we have the guarantee of Christ's last will and testament. My people are mine. They're my father's. They're held in two strong hands. People of God, we are his. Nothing in heaven or earth can change that. Thanks be to God. Our Father, I thank you for an apostle who spoke of grace, who spoke of your word, who pointed to Christ, not himself. Help your church in this hour. We're living in a battlefield. We're confused. We would like our culture to speak differently. We would like our governmental leaders to pay some nominal acknowledgement to you that we don't hear. But, Father, we're not discouraged. Your aims will not fail. You have not left your people. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the triumphant one. In his name, amen.